Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with Michael Cody, author of A Twilight Reel, a collection of short stories chronicling transformation among the inhabitants of the fictional town of Runyon, North Carolina. Robert Morgan, author of Chasing the North Star, had this to say about the book. Twilight Reel is a vivid portrait of a community in an age of rapid change. Some citizens are angered and some more tolerant of the clash of the past with the future in the uncertain present. Michael Amos Cody is one of the most authentic and inspired voices in contemporary Appalachian fiction, addressing such subjects as AIDS, bias, troubling history, marriage, ghost, dementia, and abiding loyalty and love. In these linked stories, he speaks for both the region and the world beyond. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a uh, recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing, and uh, you can join us there and, and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, we put out a lot of content on that page, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I, I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page. So join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Landis. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the book, which as I understand from reading one of your blogs, it was some 25 years in the making. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It and the, the novel that preceded it were both about that long in the making. So I'm writing now to try to figure out if I can write something in less than 25 years because uh, I may not have that much time left. I was going to say, that's, that's not <laughs> the, the, the most direct path for putting out 10 novels, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so you're coming to us from somewhere in Tennessee, right? Yes, I'm in my office on the campus of East Tennessee State University. Yeah, and you uh, 
I think you came to us from there by way of Sumter, South Carolina, where you're born, where you're raised in Walnut, North Carolina, and you spent the early years of your adult life as a songwriter in Nashville, Tennessee. I did. I spent my 20s in Nashville writing songs and playing in bands and uh, having a, a good way to spend my 20s. I was going to say, what better way to spend your 20s, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, then I uh, got married in, at 30 and spent my 30s in school and, and then got a real job uh, when I was uh, a little past 40. So, so what kind of songs did you write when you were in Nashville? Well, I had um, I had the the luxury or the curse of, of being, uh, of working with people who allowed me to write whatever I wanted to. And so what I wanted to write was sort of the, the great uh, singer songwriter kind of stuff like Springsteen and Fogelberg and, and Billy Joel. So not, not really Nashville songs. I mean, I had a few recordings by Nashville recording artists, but, but I didn't generally write the kind of things that they were, that they were uh, looking for. And, um, mm. You know, had I been able, had I been forced to do so, uh, I might not be, I might not be here doing this right now. But, uh, uh, but anyway, it's it was a good time. Yeah, and by doing what you're doing now, you are uh, very much uh, sort of a renaissance man. You, you you not only have written songs, you play the guitar, uh, you uh, and you uh, teach uh, in the English department, uh, and you're teaching. You know, not not writing per se, but you're you're teaching uh, different uh, different courses, and uh, you you even got this thing. Uh, let me see, Native American literature, mythology, uh, among other American literature before 1900. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you and I found out we have a little connection lately. My daughter's father-in-law is Philip Barnard. Uh, there isn't a word in the English language for my relation to him as I have to say my daughter's father-in-law. <laughs> right. I, don't know, that, I, don't, I don't know what that tells us about. Uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's some kind of uh, absence in that relationship. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Or... exactly. But, 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 I, but I, Philip's a good guy. And you've, you've known him because of work that y'all have done together over the years for this uh, writer and novelist named Charles Brockton Brown. Now, without taking up all our time here, just tell us who this guy is and why he's important. Charles Brockton Brown was a, a writer from the the late uh, 18th century and early 19th century uh, in America from uh, Philadelphia, where everything was happening. He was born uh, 1771, so just just prior to the Revolution. So he grew up in Revolutionary Philadelphia, where I'm guessing that you know Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and 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 all the all the signers of the Declaration. You know, we're walking the streets that he that he walked, and and uh, he uh, early on became a writer and and was America's. We we uh, of the Charles Brockton Brown uh, Society like to think he was the first American novelist. He didn't write the first American novel, but he was serious about it. He wrote a he wrote six novels, uh, published six novels. He wrote a little bit more than that, but he was a, a you know he was a, a writer that not many people. Uh, know about unless they go to graduate school in English. Um, but at the same time, uh, he was an influence on Poe and Hawthorne uh, and Herman Melville. So some of the some of the names that we're we're much more familiar with. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's uh, you know uh, it was it's been good. I worked with Philip for we've been friends for twenty years now, and and I was uh, co-editor of a. Uh, of a, a volume of Brown's collected writings that that Philip was the general editor for. So, 
I'm not sure what it says. He plays a musical instrument. You play a musical instrument mm -hmm. in academics. Of course, I think you've gone to the to the fictional side uh, uh, as well. So uh, you <laughs> got that going for you. Uh, and, and speaking of the fictional side, you actually wrote this no a novel, um, which also features the town of Runyon we're going to talk about. You mentioned it, Gabriel's Songbook. Mm -hmm. uh, that actually came out before this collection we're talking about today. And I'm just wondering, we're going to be talking on our Patreon channel listeners about uh, how to write a short story. Uh, and we'll probably touch a little bit on this. That's on uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. You can join us there. But just briefly, uh, Michael, um, you know, you've you've approached this town from two perspectives, one the novel, uh, one the short story. Which do you think, uh, you know, gives us a better picture of the town? Well, I think Twilight Reel definitely gives us a better picture of the town. In fact, um, I think if 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 it can be said that the that the collection of short stories has any sort of overarching uh, character, it's the town uh, and its mm -hmm. people rather than uh, the specific people who inhabit the stories. Um, but just the general uh, feel of the place in in Gabriel's songbook. You know, it's, it's loosely based on my um, experiences in Nashville uh, as a songwriter, and it serves, I mean, it's Gabriel's hometown, right? And so so it is his uh, sort of touchstone. Um, you know, it's where he develops his interest in music and songwriting and, and sort of develops his character there. And then once he reaches Nashville, uh, with ideas of becoming a, a big star, you know, that, that sort of small town mountain upbringing, uh, you know, comes sort of crashing up against the kind of glitz and um, very often, um, you know, false uh, character of the, of the music business, right? mm. Wherever, where things are, tend to be about image rather than about heart, I guess. One of the things I really did love about this book was the town, but not just the town itself, but uh, the different inhabitants and how these stories were connected. We may talk a little bit more about that when we get over to Patreon about the connectedness of these stories. But by connectedness, I mean, you've got a similar setting. You've got similar characters. Um, not all the characters necessarily have a major role in each story, but they just sort of pop up and, you know, okay, we're grounded. We're in the same place <laughs> that we were yeah. before, you know? And so let's talk about Runyon because I kind of tried to look it up. Couldn't, uh, I think I found the, the most information on your, on your website and listeners, you can find that at, at our show notes. But uh, this was, as you say, a real place answer. Yes. And yes. no. Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Right. So, so my Runyon is not real, but right. but uh, but the Runyon that uh, that was in that physical space, you know, was a real place in the early part of the 20th century. Um, there were some folks I think came down to North Carolina from Pennsylvania and started a a big bandsaw mill, um, and. Uh, and ran that in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, I think at least. And then, and then maybe when, uh, you know, when things crashed uh, in 29, 30, it went out of business and the town just disappeared. I mean, there are, there are no, there are no roads to it. Uh, now the railroad runs by it um, along the French broad river. Uh, but uh but it was it was right at the confluence of the Laurel River and the French Broad, and so they did a lot of logging and and um, 
and and you know the the sawmill uh, work there and and I mean you can go there today and there are there are structures um, the uh, the concrete foundations of the mill are still there in the woods the there's really kind of a haunting uh, the paymaster's uh, shack or mm. vault I guess just stands out in the middle of the woods this little concrete building with walls you know two feet thick and and uh, and there are a couple of chimneys from the so probably the mill owners uh, their houses were more permanent than the than those of the workers so so all of that is there but then I have just sort of mapped my my town uh, on top of it mm. uh, and I have a sketch uh, in my files of, of of the town you know the stores and the roads and the you know where this person lives and where that person lives and uh, and uh, and I refer to that quite often when I'm when I'm writing. Yeah, you can go to your blog uh, and uh, see yourself uh, standing in front of that uh, paymaster. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and so you say, you know, this was sort of a sawmill town. It wasn't as fleshed out as as you have done it in the book. You've got some foundations, maybe of some homes and the mill that are left. Uh, and um, but why, Michael, this little area? I mean, it's kind of sits in maybe somewhere in Western North Carolina. It's part of the Appalachians, but, but you also say it's kind of a different part of the Appalachians. Right. Um, so this is, Runyon is just probably as the crow flies less than, um, I don't know, maybe three or four miles from where I grew up in Walnut. Um, you you got to drive a lot longer than three <laughs> miles worth to get there, but uh, to get near where you can walk there. But um what I wanted to do was try to capture this feeling that I kind of grew up with uh, of people moving in uh, to sort of a very traditional community. Uh, and by traditional, I just mean an old community, right? That had been there. You know, my, my grandfather built the house that I grew up in, you know, in the, he built it in, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, and so, so this old community that, that people started moving into from Florida and other places, uh, and, and so there, there was kind of a clash, uh, in some ways, but, but, uh, not in all ways, but, but anyway, it was just, uh, it seemed like a very specific time. And, and what I did with Runyon, what Runyon allowed me to do was to take the, the three towns that Madison County uh, which is north of Asheville, uh, is most uh, known for the three towns being Marshall, which is a very much a river town, Hot Springs, a river town. But now Hot Springs has become, you know, with its connection to the Appalachian Trail uh, and the, the sort of outdoor explosion of hiking and rafting that have really come on in the last 20, 30 years. Um, Hot Springs has become this 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 very interesting little blend of old town and kind of new age town in a, in a way. Uh, and then there's Mars Hill, which also has the college. So Runyon State University is, is modeled mm-hmm. to some extent on Mars Hill College, to some extent on my undergraduate institution of UNC Asheville, and also on East, East Tennessee State, where I, where I work now. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about that is you, you throw a lot of different, uh, people into this uh, little town with different backgrounds and you bring the college in, which brings in 
you know, the academic side, uh, maybe, you know, they're going to be thinking about life differently because they're coming from different places, bigger cities, and they're settling in this little small town, which um, is kind of maybe a good spot here, Michael, for us to do our our reading, because you're going to read a little section from a, of a story called, uh, well, I know what the flute is, but you pronounce the, the, the title of the short story. <laughs> the flutist. The flutist, okay. Yeah. I had a, I had a flute teacher. I, I majored in music uh, at Mars Hill College. Uh, I did, didn't finish, but I was a flute major. Oh. And, and my uh, flute professor, uh, Dr. Joyce Bryant, despised the word flautist <laughs> that people use. She said, we don't play a flout. <laughs> we play a flute. Flutist is the right word. So, yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad I set that up so that you, <laughs> you could handle it. So, anyway, let's set this scene up because it it does it. First of all, explains a little bit how you knew how to write about someone who was going to teach the flute because of your background experience. But set this story up. Who's the main character in this story, and what is what? Where is he when you're going to do this little reading here? Okay, so this is. Um, this is, uh, I, I was having a little bit of fun with, with my own profession here, uh, in the, the process that we go through to hire new faculty. Uh, and so what is, what has happened is that a, a longtime flute teacher at Runyon State has died. He dies at the beginning of the story, though he, he is one of the main characters in the story in sort of flashback modes. Um, but anyway, his replace, they're trying to hire a replacement. And so they have invited this young man to campus, a young man named Jubal Kincaid. Uh, and, and so this is, the scene is part of his, um, part of his on-campus interview, uh, days, right? And so, um, this portion of the of the interview, you know, he's had his academic part during the day. He's taught some students to to let them observe, and and at this point, he is at the home of one of the faculty members, um, having dinner with with a group of the faculty, uh, and just kind of casual interview uh, setting. Uh, so they're they're sitting around the table, and the chair of the department has asked, you know, they've been kind of talking to him about his studies and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and the chair of the department, uh, Dr. Joanna Whitmire, has asked him a question that she likes to ask of, of, uh, of potential uh, colleagues. You know, what do you want to know about us? Right. What would you like to ask us? Uh, so sort of turns the tables uh, on the interview and allows the interviewee to ask a question. And so, so uh, Jubal Kincaid asks, well, what do you guys think about Runyon and Runyon State? You know, how do you like living here? How do you like working here? So that's the, that's the, uh, the, the prelude to this, to this little conversation that happens. Well, Dr. Whitmire said, I'll tackle the Runyon State question. She placed her fork on her dessert plate as if the two bites she had taken were all she could eat. We have too many damned administrators who take too damned much of the money. Sometimes they get into squabbles among themselves and we get caught in the middle and they pass down all these evaluation programs and processes that are supposed to improve what we do, but it's all just bullshit. And if they had to do the evaluations and reports themselves, they'd know that. We haven't had a raise in three years and merit pay has gone the way of AM radio. 
she picked up her fork again and cut away another bite of tiramisu. As for the department, we get along fairly well. Better than some, I'd say. Not as good as others. You know how, according to the Department of Biology, the first thing that develops in humans is the anus? Well, we've got a couple of folks. She raised her fork as if to toast Dr. David Grobian, who never outgrew that stage of development. The crowd around the table had grown quiet and seemed somewhat nervous when Dr. Whitmire began this speech, but they all broke into relieved laughter at the end of it. To our chair, Dr. Grobian said, raising his cup of coffee, and most around the table followed suit. This is Appalachia, Jubal, Boz McWilliams said. It's a place kind of stranded in time, I think, between a very old and scary world and a very new and scary world and it tries to play nice in the middle. I won't say that the nice is all an act, but I don't think it is. It's at least strong enough to cover a lot of violence and meanness. Again, both old and new violence and meanness. And when I say meanness, I'm thinking of more than one meaning. It's mean as in bad attitude and dangerous, and it's mean as in poor and deprived. Deprived and depraved. Dr. Bailey Everett, professor of low brass, interrupted. Now, Boz, it's not all that bad, he said. What you see is just a veneer of sanctimonious posturing. I see is a sincere attempt to get along and go along. That's the view from your gated community, Bailey, Boz McWilliams said. I grew up not far from here, Dr. Everett said. I, you grew up wealthy, Dr. McWilliams said. You, you grew up behind a gate, Dr. Grobian said, even if that gate was just the family name and the family business. Now, gentlemen, Dr. Whitmire said, you're about to make a bad impression on Mr. Kincaid. Her eyes moved quickly from Everett to Grobian to McWilliams. To Kincaid, she said, Runyon's like any other place and unlike any other place, if that makes sense. It's an old community with lots of old prejudices, and it's a college town where, in spite of the dumbasses at the top, the college promotes a lot of new ideas and brings in a lot of new things. We're a little uncomfortable with the community sometimes, and they're uncomfortable with us a lot. But mostly, we all get along pretty well. Eased by the resurgence of the wine that followed on the heels of the coffee, the remainder of the evening went smoothly. As was fitting for the participants, the conversation was mostly about music, composers and movements and anecdotes from history in the classroom. Kincaid knew they were each in her or his own way feeling him out, trying to get a sense of him as somebody they wouldn't mind bumping into in the mailroom every morning for years to come, as somebody worthy of the position of Dr. Brian Anderson, whom they all seemed to admire and miss. He felt the tensions between them. While these seemed largely benign, he could imagine their being easily susceptible to situations in which they might be blown out of proportion. Still, this group of the faculty seemed to accept the tensions and manage them or cover them. He saw that they could argue, but that the fact they could also laugh before, during, and after the argument struck him as promising. He could live in this community, he thought. Making a home here would have its challenges, but he knew of no place where that wouldn't be true. 
He couldn't find out everything about these people in this place from one visit. They couldn't find out everything about him. All the things he was couldn't in two days be rubbed up, rubbed up against all the things this place was to learn what living here would be like. The work was the one element that was certain. He could do the work that he knew if the opportunity came his way. Michael, thank you for that. Uh, this, um, first of all, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed uh, the beginning of this passage because I could I could hear the Michael, the teacher at a university, having some fun, uh, dumping on the administrators. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. I have tenure, so I can, I can do that. That's right. You can, you can do that. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of what, you know, us recovering trial lawyers do when we write, uh, you know, courtroom scenes. We dump on other lawyers. So, <laughs> um, But this a couple of things that uh, came in this passage, uh, as you described, Runyon, uh, a very old and scary world and a very new and scary world. It's a place somewhere in between. And then also it's an old community with lots of old prejudices. Um, those are essentially the kind of things you, you, you spun out in all these stories, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, one of the things I noticed after I was a, a few stories into the collection was that there, there seemed to be emerging these uh, sort of conflicts between generations or, or not always conflicts, a kind of mirroring between generations, you know, in the, the wine of astonishment, you have the old preacher and the new preacher. And um, in overwinter, you have the old, uh, the young woman leaving her husband and uh, the old woman who had tried to leave her husband in the past. Uh, and, um, you know, the scary parts uh, of the uh, of the old world were were probably the violent, the potential for violence, uh, as as is apparent in those stories. Uh, for example, those two stories, Overwinter and The Wine of Astonishment. But then the the new scary part, uh, I think, is largely based on change, right? Fear of change and uh, what is this place that I've always called home gonna is what is it changing into, and can I survive that change? Yeah, and you dealt with uh, a number of topics, uh, one of which uh, came up in several stories, uh, homosexuality. Um, mm-hmm. Jubal Kincaid, who comes to this little small town to, to teach flute, uh, he's gay. Uh, he brings his partner with him. Um, that's something the town is not used to. And then a, in another story, um, the father of a son comes home and the son is gay and has AIDS and his father, very poignant story where the father is trying to understand, but the friends and neighbors aren't even trying to understand. Right. 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 Yeah. And then, and then the twilight reel, um, which I thought um, that story not only brought together what had been happening up in these other two stories, but it was sort of a, uh, it's not the Clint Eastwood kind of ending that takes care of a problem, you know. <laughs> they do it in a they do it in a different way, right? They do it with music. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's uh, you know the that I was really pleased with the way that sort of story arc, those three stories, uh, worked out. And and um, I think I mean there are a couple of things. There was there was. Um, you know the the kind of uh, there was a story of a of a of a young man that I had been in school with. You know when I was growing up in Madison County, um, a couple of grades 
behind me who, um, and, and I don't know his story other than the bare bones of it, right? That he went away to college uh, and and came back uh, home eventually to die of AIDS. And that's about all I knew of his story. Uh, and then I had, I don't know where it came from, but I had this image of, of musicians up on a kind of catwalk in front of a, a movie screen uh, and uh, wanted to see what that was about. And so it kind of just wrote the story um, to include that, you know, so, so everything I think in those three stories is kind of centered in the middle story, um, the invisible world around them. Uh, but, and, and the flutist sort of sets it up, a fiddle and a twilight reel uh, brings it to conclusion. But like you say, not, uh, not necessarily the the uh, the shoot 'em up conclusion. There is a, there is a there is a good uh, a, a good punch and a knock a couple of knockouts there uh, in the in the the drive-in movie theater grounds, but uh, but not uh, not a gun gunplay and such. Well, I like I like how when I'm reading a book, I, I recognize certain places. I mean, there was this scene. Um, where you're taking Lonesome Mountain Road and then you go through Johnson City and then you end up on 19E and you go by Roan Mountain and you're up on top of the mountain itself. And by the way, listeners, if you hadn't been to Roan Mountain in Tennessee, it's a beautiful view on top. It's not far from Boone, say about an hour. Um, and since I live up and do some fly fishing up in that area, uh, part of the time during the year in the Boone area, I love seeing the connections there to, to Roan Mountain and, and these other areas. I almost felt like, hey, I, I understand this place. And yet I didn't understand the place. And one of my, I have to say, Mike, one of my favorite stories or the one that I keep going back and thinking about is conversion. Um, you know, I, I love the time. And the reason is because when I'm driving around in the mountains and in the, in the Appalachian mountains, you come across all these different, I mean, old houses, you come across churches that might look abandoned. Um, and this story is about a church that essentially has been abandoned and it's going through some change um, in that another religion uh, is going to take it over as its home. And there's this interesting controversy that develops between the leader, uh, I believe it's the Muslim faith, who's going to come in and build this new environment, and the people who are seeing their church, which was dedicated when they went to it, to their God, not understanding how it can now be a place for some other God. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, and talk about that. Cause I, I think there's one line in here where the person who is moving in is saying, in essence, this is only a building. It's neither Christian nor Islamic. And he paused to look around at the faces, but they weren't, they didn't understand that. They couldn't, right. they couldn't grasp that in part because maybe, in that part of the world, you know, that kind of change is slow to come, right? And yes. they, they weren't used to it. Um, but talk about that a minute, because I, first of all, I love the title. It was perfect for not only you thinking it's one thing, but it's actually another. It's not people that are being converted. It's a building that's being converted. <laughs> right, right. Um, that story, uh, you know, I, I came uh, to ETSU and I have friends uh, here on the campus uh, and in the department who are who are Muslim uh, from other parts of the world, um, 
my friend uh, Yusuf um, is uh, is Muslim from uh, the Sudan, and he helped me with the the uh, the greetings and and with the uh, the Mus- There's a little snippet of Muslim uh, of of uh, Arabic text uh, in the book. Um, that's part of the sign that they're putting up uh, that Yusuf helped me with. Uh, but it, it sort of came from, you know, meeting these people and, and just understanding that we're all just human, you know, doing what we need to do to, to get by, uh, you know, physically, spiritually, all of these things. And, and then, you know, on my drive home, which is out through the country, um, a mosque has been, you know, several years ago was built basically in a on the edge of a, a cow pasture uh, and i just i just began to think about what is it like to have a mosque here in this environment that is there's often you know very uh, very christian and very fundamentalist christian uh, in a lot of ways and and so i started playing with those those ideas but uh, in this one in this in conversion it's a story that that the the Christian congregation has sort of failed because of uh, some misbehavior of, of the pastor, and they have lost their building. Uh, and and the uh, the Islamic community uh, needs a place for its worship, and so it has bought the building, and it's converting it uh, into a mosque. Uh, and and so the some of the you know very conservative very fundamentalist members of the church along with some more slightly middle of the road uh, members of that church show up to kind of protest and protect their uh, territory i guess right and and dr badur says you know i mean this is a building right um, and we're we're being respectful of the, the stuff that we're taking out uh, of yours uh, and um, and so it's a it's a it's an interesting conflict mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, when when Yusuf my friend read it he he said I kept expecting somebody to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting story because it gets you to thinking long after the story, as many of these stories do. Wonderful uh, collection there. Before we finish up here, Michael, let's just do a couple of quick uh, writing life questions. I asked this of authors. You've been at it for a while. I mean, anyone who takes 25 years to write a novel and a <laughs> collection of short stories has got to know the answer to this question. If right. you could, if you could tell your younger fiction writing self something very helpful to you that uh, might have helped you uh, sooner along the way, what would it be? Um, well, obviously, I was fairly patient. So just, just tell, I would tell the younger one, your patience will be rewarded. Just, just keep going. And, and I also, I think, what I would say. Um, just because you're not you're writing the novel or the or the short story collection at this point, all the writing you're doing is is valuable and and um, contributing to you know what these two books you know are ultimately going to be. I mean the the writing I did in the chart you know scholarship on Charles Brockton Brown or Nathaniel Hawthorne or the songs that I, you know, have written from time to time, not as much as I did in the eighties, but, but still that, that all that writing is, is valuable and, and contributes to where um, I always felt like I needed to be going right? mm-hmm. and, and uh, felt like I wasn't there. But at the same time, I think I would tell myself, you're there, you know, you're, 
you're getting there right along. Well, I, I, you know, a good podcast host doesn't ask a leading question. Only a lawyer who's trying to pin somebody down <laughs> would do that. But uh, I would normally ask you what's the most important thing to you about craft writing fiction. But having looked at what you've written, uh, talked to you, seen all the different things you're in, let me just try this leading question here. Do you think, do you think, Michael, that uh, you know one of the most important things to writing fiction is having a broad life experience? Yes. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, and I think, I mean, as I said, Landis, I grew up in this in this very Runyon-like area, seeing all these changes, and and you know, at the same time, being myself and and reading and writing and and you know, doing the things that I did growing up, and then. I took a trip to uh, a summer. I spent a summer on a tour in Europe, just not music, just students touring around seeing Europe in 1979. And that, you know, that kind of started my, you know, broadening my life experiences, you know, and then into studying music and then into studying English and, and continuing to write through all of it. Uh, I think it, uh, it, it gives me a, uh, a, a broad range of experiences and emotions and uh, lives to draw on. Yeah, that's great. Hey, one quick uh, question. Uh, what do you think the uh, COVID vaccine rate would be in the town of Runyon? Um, <laughs> there, there would be, uh, there would be, you know, anti-vaxxers around, uh, but then, you know, you've got the university there and, and, uh, the university is, is, uh, you know, probably like, uh, my university here, you know, trying to figure out how to bring students onto campus safely. Uh, you know, do we do the mask mandate in spite of, uh, potential resistance to that? And so I think Runyon, I think down, probably like a lot of places, downtown Runyon would be uh, fairly uh, fairly low uh, as far as the the uh, infection rate. But but get beyond uh, Main Street and the campus, uh, and it might go up. Okay, well, like I say, Runyon is sort of a reflection of the of the world in which we live. So, hey, Michael, this has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed reading your book, and uh, thank you so much for being on Charlotte Readers Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a fan. Uh, I, I listen to it a lot, so uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be here. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.